Um, I think the format is, I'm going to ask um, each of you in uh, no particular order, you can decide who will go first, second and third, just to talk for roughly five minutes about uh, themes you see emerging from the conference or generally about uh, uh, reducing religious conflict and um, then we'll uh, open it up for a general discussion. So who, who would like to speak I start off as we go on yeah. well, well, Should I just pick up um, the, the very last point about religious reasons and putting the lid on them first? Because I've always thought that one very bad reason uh, for doing that is actually that you keep them in, you keep them under, you keep them private, you keep them out of sight, and they cannot be challenged. Now, there are a lot of bad religious reasons. There are a lot of malign religions around. I mean, I happen to think not all religion is malign, but some of it certainly is. There's a pathology of religion. Um, uh, not everything the Pope says is bad, and he used that phrase. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's only by exposing religion to the light, in a sense, to reason, uh, that one can actually expose some of this bad religion. Now, that comes back to things that came up yesterday about reason and religion. Now, I was an undergraduate graduate here more years ago than I better admit. Um, when A.J. Eyre was here and teaching me, and I used to go to his seminars, that was, he was the, for those of you who don't remember, um, he, in fact, or who've never heard of him, he was not only a kind of telepersonality and leading humanist, but also the apostle in this country of logical positivism. Um, the Vienna Circle meeting in Vienna had put forward a very science-based philosophy, and he popularized it in this country, uh, exemplified by the so-called verification principle, so that, in a sense, if something isn't scientifically accessible, it isn't either meaningful, let alone true. Now, even at that time, uh, in the 1960s, uh, that principle was looking exceedingly worn. And in the philosophy of science, it was quite clear that it didn't work. And people like Quine, I'm not going to go into the philosophy of science too much, don't worry, but people like Quine were pointing out that, in fact, scientific theories were underdetermined by empirical data, but that didn't invalidate them. And uh, physics needed theoretical entities. Modern physics needs a lot of entities that are outside um, our, our empirical access. So you think of the interior of black holes, the other side of the universe, subatomic particles even. We need to talk about them in physics. It's very difficult to empirically verify them, certainly directly. Yet yesterday, Scott was talking about uh, reason being either empirical or logical. That's pure logical positivism, analytic and synthetic propositions. Uh, I think the philosophy of science has moved well beyond that. And this narrowing of reason by definition, so that it is only the reason that is used, not only within science, but within a rather narrow conception of science, uh, is, is, I think, something that is one way of dealing with this debate about religion, but of course it's dealing with it by a priori means, by definition, by saying, right, I'm going to define reason in such a way that religion is non-rational. And that's before you've had the debate. So it may very well be your religion's false. But I think one ought to have the debate about it, not say from the very start it's all absurd, it's all non-rational, uh, we'll dismiss it. And, uh, of course, that then has implications for the issue of the role of religion in public life. One of the features of um, uh, logical positivism 
and its ilk was that it rather touchingly thought that there were neutral data and science was totally neutral. Now the work of uh, later people in the philosophy and history of science and not least Thomas Kuhn uh, suggests that that's a forlorn hope that you can't actually separate out facts and values in that neat way so that of course religion would be on the value side and hence subjective and hence to be privatised and science is on the factual side hence subjective, hence all right in the outside world. It doesn't work like that even for science and uh, given that then I think we were offered yesterday rather simplistic views of reason and I think actually a rather more generous view of reason which allows religious people to bring forward reasons in public debate and not silly reasons like it says this in the Bible, you do it, but, but reasons that perhaps appeal to even a word like the sanctity of life. Well, th- perhaps that does point to something that even non-religious people might actually think important. I don't want to just say you can't use that. I think actually it's socially and democratically it's very unhealthy to do that. Okay, uh, Accused of logical positivism. So. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, I think Freddie Air was right on about uh, certain aspects of. He didn't even himself later on, you know. I mean, he began to change too. So. No, I think he, he kept constant about what he called metaphysical beliefs. Uh, yeah. But yeah. I, I think he was, he was probably wrong about science. But here's a good example of the difference between science and religion. So, you have Ernest Rutherford and Niels Bohr come up with a view of the atom as a miniature solar system in 1912. And within about six months, they (coughs) refute that notion. So they have this sort of cosmological notion, which was a very open notion, sort of metaphorical notion, about how the macrocosm and the microcosm might be related. And then they went out, and they eventually threw it out. I mean, there wasn't one test that did it. It was a whole bunch of reflections they went through. Uh, The Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, took exactly the same board rather from Adam and used it as a metaphor for the uh, uh, relations between the macrocosm and the microcosm. But the difference was there was nothing that could kill that metaphor. And there wasn't any attempt either to validate it or to kill it off or to make it explicit. It was to keep it as open as possible. And in fact, that's the principal difference. One is to remain forever open textured, and that's what gives it adaptive value and the other is to close it and make it as well-defined and precise as you can. Uh, And that's a long research program. Of course, it's it's a never-ending program, but it's quite different in terms of its uh, intentions and its final goal. Now, when I say, um, when I said religious or religious beliefs are absurd, I'm using it in the sense that that even religious votaries like uh, Soren Kierkegaard or even Thomas Hobbes Used. That is, Hobbes said one of the peculiar conditions of, of human beings is their um, obedience to the privilege of absurdity to which no creature but man is subject. And that privilege of absurdity is to make a conception of human groups, um, one aspect of it, a conception of human groups that has no basis in some fundamental principles of logic or uh, Empirical, empirical validation. Now, I don't care whether you want to call it religion or metaphysical beliefs or whatever it is. As I said, it, it applies to all of the family principles of human groups that go beyond the family or the tribe. I don't think there's any exceptions. And I, and I also um, 
argue that it, it, it defines human rights as well, or civil rights. And the, and, and the point is further. Human beings, I think, are driven more by this power of absurdity than they are by logic and reason, to the extent that they're willing to kill and die for it, to make their greatest cooperative efforts and their sacrifices for it. And that's a really intriguing intellectual problem, as well as an interesting political problem. Because what it says is, you've got to approach those kinds of beliefs in very, very different ways. And I think the experimental data is overwhelming. I mean, when we treat the way people everywhere in the world, in the field, I mean, you know, I, I run around with Mujahideen, but I also you know, test normal people, and I test priests and rabbis and sadhus and all these other kinds of people. And we find that they, people just process those kinds of beliefs differently in the brain. Not only do we show that they do actually process things differently in the brain, but we show cognitively what the inferential results of these processes should be, or likely to be. So the idea is, how can science help us leverage this knowledge that science is producing of the difference between things like religious beliefs or um, transcendental beliefs in general and sort of uh, data-driven uh, and logical beliefs. And I think uh, it, it gives us some interesting ideas. First it says, and I'll just give you some of the consequences again. Um, it says the, the overwhelming way that political negotiators deal with diplomatic with problems of intractable conflicts, for example, is to do piecemeal negotiations. That is, to try to uh, incentivize uh, willingness to compromise and to do this sort of back and forth. And what this says is that not only does that not work, it backfires. Because not only are people insensitive to all the things that logic, for example, I mean, sort of traditional sorts of logic, uh, coherent, if you want to call it coherence checking, I mean, it doesn't have to be first-order logic. It can be any of the kinds of coherence checking and validation that people normally mean by, by reasonable beliefs or, or uh, empirical validation. And the way you, you, you deal with it is on a completely different register. So instead of trying to compromise, you can't compromise your core beliefs. It's impossible. It's like giving up a piece of yourself, who you are, or giving up a piece of your child. You can't offer a piece of you and take a piece of them. So what do you do in intractable conflicts where those are the framework beliefs? Well, you can reframe them, as I argue. And that's a very different political process than standard negotiations. I also think that um, in everyday life, there are, I think there's a new book out here called Things Money Can't Buy. And I think that it's quite on to something very deep. That is, the things that really drive human beings, again, to make their greatest exertions in their lives and to make the choices in their lives are these kinds of ineffable beliefs and inscrutable beliefs. There was an anthropologist, Skip Rappaport, old friend of mine. He, uh, he came up with this idea. Basically, he, he, he tried to use the logical positive tradition tradition to turn it on its head and show how completely adaptive it was, and he was working with small-scale societies in New Guinea, to show that societies that have such ineffable beliefs, beliefs that cannot be challenged by logic and reason, are those kinds of framework beliefs that allow societies to survive in the face of adversity. Now, 
What about religion in general? I think religion in general is like cars or airplanes. I mean, they're vehicles in which you can put about anything you want uh, into them. They have no intrinsic properties other than these kinds of abstract properties that are not logical or empirical in the sense I'm describing. And you can do for the good or you can do for the bad. And the interesting thing is not whether religion is good or bad, or whether religion is compatible with democracy or not, or whether Islam is compatible. That's, an, um, for me, a senseless question. People make it compatible or not. People who interpret it in the context of their everyday lives can decide. I mean, there's theater in Cairo right now where people on the street are trying to figure out what Islam and democracy actually means, I mean, what it could mean. Nothing is fixed in advance. There are traditions, of course, that impose constraints on it. But this is a constant dialogue going, going around. So what can science again do? Science again can show us that there's an open texturedness to this, that it's not fixed, that this kinds of negotiation of meaning, of narrative, if you want, is a very sensitive kind of thing, and it doesn't rely on simply um, either declaring it impossible to deal with or declaring that reason must rule. There's an incredibly complex and nuanced dynamic going on between the use of reason and the use of transcendental beliefs. And again, I include a non-religious transcendental beliefs, the ideological beliefs that govern all human societies. And again, I think they are much more powerful in terms of their ability to motivate people, to, to, to allow civilizations to rise or fall. And that's Toynbee's old, old position, but I think it's the right one. And so again, I think we need a lot more research into how we can leverage, now people don't like I say leverage on reason, or leverage absurdity, or leverage these transcendental metaphysical aspects uh, towards uh, resolving conflict. I don't think there's, in standard political and economic theory, there's almost anything about it. In fact, sacred values, the kinds of values I'm talking about, which are obvious to people once they're exposed, there's no research on it. There's almost nothing. There's a lot more on sort of mundane moral reasoning or economic reasoning, both standard and non-standard, than anything on these kinds of values. It's only sort of beginning. Nothing near a prospect theory of these kinds of values, but I think it, it, it's crucial, in fact critical. And just one last point. I think the, the ideas that have been brought forth in this conference that certainly have informed me about how we might use um, things like um, self-criticism or empathy or trying to get people to be more malleable or at least to recognize the malleability of others or to build um, cross-group friendships, both indirect and indirect. All these are extremely interesting ideas. My problem is, first, how to make it last. But even before that, how to get it started. <coughs> Right? So one of the problems, for example, the, you know, uh, the, the Irish problem, well, that took decades. And the last, the last period of discussion lasted nine years. First three years, nobody talked to one another. Then this is after the Belfast Five started, the start of themselves, I guess, and people like John Alderdice got involved. Uh, then they screamed at one another. And then it moved to the House of Lords, and they continued screaming at one another until they were kicked out of the House of Lords. They apologized and they began talking, and they began dealing with these fundamental issues of who you are. In the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, nothing can even get started 
There is no, listen, I meet with these guys, right? Fayyad, the prime minister, has never talked in his life to Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, even though Fayyad is really the best friend Israel has got, right? They have never communicated, much less these enemies who simply try to kill one another. So how do we get the leaders themselves to employ the kinds of um, psychological, undistancing approaches that people here have have proposed. I think until we can figure out how to do that, we're going to get basically nowhere. Okay, well, thank you, Scott. Uh, Julian. Okay, I'll be brief. I'll make three points. Um, so, first of all, this was one of the best conferences that I've been to. Generally, I'm, um, and I'm sorry I missed some of the talks, but I had um, selection of these. But um, all of the talks that I attended, uh, even Tony's, were fine. <laughs> Yours was certainly uh, in its own genre, an excellent talk. Um, but I think that one of the things we're very concerned about in our practical ethics program is trying to identify human beings as human animals that have certain dispositions, certain evolved psychologies, and behave in certain ways. And, and I think that particularly yesterday there were wonderful examples how we can use the knowledge that's been gained from psychology and anthropology, sociology, evolutionary theory to try to make progress on the great human problems and particularly conflict um, that humanity faces. So I think this is probably the most important project there is, as I tried to indicate. Uh, the great problem in practical ethics is not something external, it, it's human beings, and we are basically animals, and there's widespread agreement, even amongst um, religious scholars, that we are evolved animals with a certain kind of nature. So I, I found yesterday extremely fascinating. And I think that that is, that is a great project. The second point I wanted to make was to, to underscore something you just said in this debate. Richard Dawkins had a debate with Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I, I think you were probably there, Margaret. He organised it. And, you know, it was, it, was, it was interesting. But we had a dinner afterwards, which, which was far more interesting than the actual question. And Chris Patton actually asked the, the Chancellor and the, the Governor of Hong Kong, handed over Hong Kong to the Chinese, asked the best question right at the end of the evening. He said to, he said to Richard Dawkins, said, isn't in the end your belief about the origin of the universe based on the same kind of faith and, uh, and belief that, that his view about the origin of the universe is, Rowan Williams's view? And Richard Dawkins goes, oh, yes, 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 but I don't invent all this romantic stuff on top of it. And I said to him, but there is a difference between your views and that is that your view will change in the light of further evidence, whereas his view will never change. And, he, and, and Rowan Williams said, that's not true. My beliefs do change about what's wrong. I said, well, what would, what would cause you to give up your belief in, say, miracles? And he said, a change in my faith. And that was exactly the point, that these beliefs are held on faith and are not revisable in the light of whatever progress... And this analogy between the complexities of modern physics and belief in religious propositions is, I think, deeply flawed for precisely the reason that you said. Um, these are beliefs that are immune to scrutiny or revision and, and as such, have, are irrelevant to, to everyday action. And this brings me almost to the third point. Even if God had created the universe... It's irrelevant to whether we should permit homosexuals to be married, have children, uh, whether we should use IVF. Because 
how would that, the truth of that belief, translate into any kind of action? Well, which scriptures are we going to use? Are we going to use the Koran, the Bible, some other religion? How are we to decide those questions? Whatever the questions that we face, the truth or falsity of a god or many gods is irrelevant to the everyday business of practical ethics. And so that brings me to the, to the final point that I want to make. Not only do we face this challenge of trying to live with our own nature as animals, we now face a crisis of what you call transcendental values and so on. We now need to work out what values and principles we're going to construct our society and our world by. And it's here, I think, that the big debate is to be had and is still to be had. And in this sense, I think that it's fine to use concepts like the sanctity of life in that debate, but you have to define them in terms that don't appeal either to a scripture or to a supernatural being or to some other entity that can't be on the table for discussion. And that's where I think the big divide between religious and non-religious reasons is. And just to finish, I want to say one thing about Tony's final claim. No, I certainly didn't want to give the impression I was against anybody articulating what they think is right and wrong. If you think homosexuality is an abomination... By all means, don't live a homosexual life. Express that view. There's a difference between the views that are expressed about right and wrong and the views which feed into, in an intimate way, into public policy and determine how people are treated in society. And that's the target, was the target. It's fine for people to live according to whatever religious values they have or no religion or whatever, insofar as their actions only affect their own life. What is problematic is when those are translated into public discourse without some other, as Audi says, some other sufficient secular justification. And that's what... But I think this is a big project and it's equally as important as the project of using science to understand how to make progress on these problems. Because science alone won't settle what those transcendental values should be. Science alone won't, won't tell us how we should order our society. Can I just come back very quickly? Um, just on this business about reason and religion, I do think that uh, your emphasising the gap between faith and reason far too much. Uh, my religious faith would be based very much on reason, and I can specify things that would make me give it up. Um, Christian faith, but what if, they, if, if it was discovered, for instance, that the bones of Jesus were discovered? Well, that would be the end of the resurrection. And, uh, and I think arguments from natural theology to God... Uh, are very powerful. Now, Richard Dawkins admits that there are arguments, but bad arguments. Now, that there's a, an argument to be had there about how good or bad they are. But reason enters into all of this. And I don't think faith is blind. And faith, faith is always faith in something. It has to be rationally specified. And I think it's open to argument as much as anything else. And, uh, uh, I mean, actually, I, I mean, I, I've always believed that reason is very, very important and central. And, and in fact... Um, I think that the trouble about uh, talking about us as evolved animals is that sometimes it downplays the role of reason. And after all, one of the greatest products of reason is our modern science. And, and that immediately distinguishes us from animals. So we have to take that into account as well. Okay, uh, stop. Do you have a, a reaction to Julia that you wanted to get off your chest? <laughs> I think we're pretty much on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm going to open the floor to questions and comments. Um, so you could either make a comment in response to one of these uh, statements, or um, you could uh, uh, make.
make an observation about what we've uh, learned in this conference or um, something in that regard. So we'll start over here. Um, Basil, thank you very much for a very interesting conference. Um, so I'm just trying to bring together a couple of things we've been saying. Scott um, was saying that, that, that there's no intrinsic properties to uh, um, to religions that are supposed to uh, social construct, but, but at the same time you can't compromise your, your core beliefs, whatever they are. And Julian, you're saying that reason and religion are based on different types of belief. One's to do with faith and one's reason and it, and it can be discounted. That's fine, but in the context of a pluralist society, do you think that religion should have any kind of authority at all? And what is public policy in some way if it's not an admission of what's right? And is there a difference between what religion does and what public policy may do um, within the context of human beings living in a society and moral discourse? Well, I think religion should be a purely private matter. When Tony said you know, religious people want to have the right to publicly express their religion, that's fine. But what there should be, as you put it, a very, very tall and thick wall between state and church. And, and I think that wall has been eroded uh, if it ever was um, such a significant wall. And I, and I think we need to, that's a very useful wall to have, and that, that religion shouldn't play a part. In, in the workings of the state. Now, there will be a lot of disagreement about it. I'm just to clarify my position. First, I, I believe there are fundamentally cognitive different registers between religious belief and other kinds of beliefs. Um, see, I don't see religion... I think there's a confusion between religion as an institution and as an institutional organization and religion as a cognitive religion or transcendentalism is a cognitive framework for dealing with the world. Most, as I said before, from a scientific point of view, humans are incidental elements in the universe and it's a trivial imperfection to ignore them, okay, from a Martian scientist point of view. But humans are central to their own existence and to the existence around them. Science doesn't deal very well and only very, very piecemeal and in a very long run with the personal elements that all interest most of us in everyday life. I mean, it, it, outside the realm of scientists themselves and a few philosophers' interests in, in science, science doesn't have much role indirectly in, in everyday life. I mean, of course, it builds our technologies and ultimately decides the character of our society, but in terms of personal relations with one another and other people, it has a very, very limited role, if any. Uh, in most people's everyday life. Our belief systems, that is, these, these beliefs that are m more often than not inscrutable or ineffable in terms of the ability to see through them and to throw them away if, if they're challenged, they have a lot more to do with how we regulate our personal relationships. Some people believe, and I'm not one of them, that there are biologically adaptive reasons for um, the evolution of religious beliefs. I happen to believe that there are culturally adaptive reasons, and I, I've shown that in the history of human conflict, for example, I've tried to show the history of human conflict, we find the progress in more potent and moralizing gods as societies become larger and try to figure out ways to stay together. We've now, since the French Revolution again, come up with new ways of trying to deal with large-scale cooperation. But I still think they are fundamentally of an ineffable kind. And 
the separation of church and state seems to be almost irrelevant in the sense that, yes, there shouldn't be institutionalized religions supported by one majority or minority group that tends to dominate society, just as much as you should not have an institutionalized political party that has dominance or not in our society. But that religious beliefs should not enter into the political fray, I think that's frankly crazy and impossible, and I don't see it happening in, in any society in the first year world. Well, let me give you an example of something that should not have happened. We had, in, we had the first euthanasia legislation in the world in Australia, in the Northern Territory. It was initiated by the, the Marshall Parent who headed the Northern Territory after I think his mother or someone died very um, grimly. And, he, and they, they had a process of two psychiatrists and so on, and, and this was supported by the Northern Territory. And it was voted in. Mm -hmm. um, and then an independent right-wing Catholic, Kevin Andrews, who had been a vocal opponent of, against IVF, then introduced a private member's bill, and he was from Victoria, and the majority of his electorate actually supported euthanasia. He introduced a private member's bill that effectively overturned the legitimate, legitimately you know, voted for euthanasia, according to his own personal conscience as a <coughs> Catholic. I think that is totally inappropriate uh, use of power and belief uh, to, to influence you know, social progress. But you said overturned it. He, he went through a parliamentary procedure. And then there was a vote, a conscience vote in the... It's a bit compared with the federal system. Yes. So the, and but it wasn't own. just him imposing his views. He got other people oh, to agree with him. As, well, as all these things happen, uh, there are many actors. But the, the critical point is he was the essential motivator. It was it turned on a conscience vote. And again, I think entirely inappropriately that federal parliament voted in, in terms of conscience over the legislation that had that the Northern Territory had formed and yeah. was working perfectly adequately. There, there are two separate issues in this. Uh, I hate to stand up and support Kevin Andrews who, who, <laughs> who, who detests me as a sort of liberal Catholic and, uh, and I, I dislike vast numbers of things about Kevin Andrews but I can't see that he... The two separate things are whether the, the federal government exercised appropriate power in overturning uh, the territory's legislation. And the answer to that is that technically, yes, they could do it and they did do it. Uh, broadly, more politically and so on, should they don't? No. I think that's a, a very bad uh, antecedent for the relations between territories and the federal government. And I argue strongly against something. It's got nothing to do with religion, though. Uh, Kevin Andrews, yes, he, he acted on uh, partly religious beliefs, uh, but he wasn't uh, arguing that uh, because of his religious beliefs something should happen. He argued all sorts of things about imperfections in the law. I think he was wrong about those. Uh, I supported that particular law. But uh, he, he argued a case on this sort of thing. He won over a whole lot of people. Uh, in, the, in the parliament, not generally in the public. Uh, and as uh, Roger says, I mean, he, it was a perfectly standard operation of democracy. This is why I say you're undemocratic. I mean, I think the fact that... Well, I don't think democracy is the perfect system, and no, I think well, this is a great I'm example. Well, I'd rather glad exemplify glad that. that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm glad we've got that. Maybe we should move on, because as usual, we've got a, uh, a list, so Joanna. Thanks, I have um, two questions. So one for Julian on the same topic again, and one for Scott. So um, I'm sympathetic to a lot of your practical concerns, um, but I've been reading some material about uh, religious persecution, and 
uh, basically there's been this sort of huge amount of uh, descriptive statistics done looking uh, by, by Grimm and Fink, these scholars, um, looking at the distribution of um, sort of social hostilities based on religion um, and also government restrictions based around religion and looking at rates of sort of persecution and so on. And they found like very strong patterns that people who are sort of going after other individuals on religious grounds, so sort of cases of violence against other people on religious grounds, overwhelmingly the people who are perpetrating the violence are citing the fact that they've been persecuted and there have been sort of tyrannical impositions on their ability to practice their religion. So I'm just curious like how that factors into your picture of what the appropriate political response is. You know. Well, as Roger said, the basic principle should be a harm principle that, I mean, no, okay. no people who hold religious views should be persecuted right. okay. <laughs> unless they're, they're harming someone else. And so I think that... You know, we just need to get back to basics and just stick to that principle and we so can all yeah, much more peaceful. It just seems like a delicate a delicate line to walk. That sounds appealing to me, whereas some of the description that you gave before sounded much more prohibited like actively prohibitive against Although as Tony indicated, I think that the notion of harm isn't altogether someone that's going to settle all disputes because I think a religious person's notion of what's harmful might still differ from your that's, idea. That's exactly you know what the hard devil in the paint was about yes. because you know religious people said it was a harm to them that homosexuality was occurring in society even though they weren't involved in it. And this just shows you exactly how this creepy, expansive notion of harm to include religious harms is just what we should be opposing. They said it was a harm to society. Well, I meant a completely different thing. I mean, they weren't saying, this hurts me. They alleged, wrongly in mind, that it was a harm to society. The, the way to deal with that is not to rant about religion. It's to show that they're wrong. Okay, and you had a question for Scott? Yeah, so I wanted to push you a little bit on the absurdity thesis, just to maybe clarify a little bit more about... Um, why else we wind up fastening onto some values and not others? So, in your description, one of the things you said was that you tend to, um, you know, the sacred values are absurd. You, you can't sort of find a concrete empirical justification for why we hold them. Um, there's a difference between saying that they're that it's turtles all the way down that we're not going to get to the sort of bottom ground, and and saying that that it's just simply that they're absurd. And wh why do we choose? Well, first, it's not, I don't, uh, two things. Okay. One, values, apparently absurd beliefs, can be um, <coughs> given quite concrete and reasonable interpretations and contexts. That's why you have weekly sermons. You, know? you can always use them and give them an actual political, social, or economic interpretation at will and make them consistent for the moment because they're consistent basically with anything, but you give them the context to do that. Um, secondly, you can engineer it so that particular interpretations actually come into being. That's in fact what the revolutionaries of the American Revolution and the French Revolution did with their crazy beliefs. So there are ways of leveraging them, there are ways of interpreting them, and there are ways of honing them down. And then there are other ways of just keeping them open textured, like the Tai Chi, you know, or astrology, where you want them open textured. So it runs, religious beliefs actually, it runs a, over an entire range of human cognitions. What they aren't are, again, sort of, you, you can't build a, 
uh, sort of set of procedures from getting from the proposition to the world. Okay, there's no way of doing that. Nor can you, a set of fixed propositions, and nor can you do a sort of logical check. That's all. But other than that, there are lots of things you can do. I mean, that's what we do in pragmatics. You know, much of the things we just talk about in everyday life are elliptical. Uh, they have no particular empirical basis, no seeming logical coherence, but we immediately start trying to give it an appropriate interpretation, and we do it fairly successfully and fairly rapidly. The only difference between sort of ordinary communicative beliefs like this and these sort of framework beliefs, these beliefs that sort of form the, the moral frame with, within which our, trans, our material and our economic and social transactions are possible, is that they're usually held up as iconic beliefs that people know are to be reinterpreted periodically from time to time and never fixed. And everybody knows that. By the way, just to give you a, a very interesting uh, other empirical take on this. So um, Dawkins has this idea of a meme, right? This is a sort of replicable idea that sort of parasitic on the notion of, of, of a gene. So the idea is that it replicates with fidelity from mind to mind, it invades minds, it builds fortresses in minds, does all sorts of things it seems. So we actually tried to test whether, and, and that religion is a sort of invasion of these brainwashed means that take over people's minds. So what we did was we put the Ten Commandments on the board, and we had people, normal people, and we had autistics look at the Ten Commandments. And we picked a few commandments, like thou shalt, now not, thou shalt not bow down before false idols. And then we had someone come in the room, we erased the board, they had given their interpretation of what they think it means, and they told it to that person. And then we did this through ten iterations. Then we put a bunch of propositions after the tenth person back on the board, and we asked if they recognized any of those. Okay. The only ones who recognized the original commandments were autistics. And the only reason they did it was because autistics actually literally repeat things, like thou shalt not bow down before false idols, you shouldn't bend your knees before statues kinds of things. While normal people give it this incredible range of interpretations from you should be nicer to your children, money isn't everything, blah, 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 blah. So, Human beings are normally inferential machines. That is, the actual communicative items transmitted between uh, human beings that they code and decode is trivial. What it does do is trigger a whole inferential mechanism. And religious beliefs do that very, very deeply. But surely the same kind of thing would happen if you had 10 sentences that had nothing to do with religion and you had people repeat them in Oh no, only certain, no, we don't get, the grass is green, and the grass is green, you, we do, we, certainly we do controls. But we did another one with East Asians and Americans, let a thousand flowers bloom. So the A Asians knew that let a thousand flowers bloom was an iconic thing from Mao's Little Red Book, right? They treated it exactly like the commandments. And when a million people in Tiananmen Square had let a thousand flowers bloom, everyone believes they're believing the same thing, but everyone has a completely different interpretation. I mean, the semantic structure, of what the content of what they're actually is completely different. But the grass is green. That was the same for everybody. There was no, there was no thing. So I'm, you know, 
And we did it in several languages. Sometimes they say gazon, panouse. It didn't matter. I mean, they were all autistics for the grass is green. Let's move on. So we had a question over here. Um, yes, it's a question for Scott, kind of following up on that, actually. Um, so uh, an idea of sacred belief. So you, seem, you were saying about the kind of neurological basis of this, uh, which seems to imply that maybe this capacity for sacred beliefs is something that's fundamental to human nature, with the exception maybe of autism. Um, but it does vary on a person-to-person basis, maybe. So maybe it's not a qualitative difference between religious and non-religious worldviews, but it's a quantitative difference, maybe, in the idea that maybe some people have the capacity to accept greater magnitudes of violation of expectations. Um, for some people, it's easy. For some people, it isn't. So my question to you is, do you think that might be the case? And as a follow-up, is that difference in capacity for accepting these significant when it comes to explaining the dif- difficulty in the discourse between, say, religious and non-religious worldviews? It's not qualitative, it's a quantitative difference. Okay, mm-hmm. lots of things in that question. Um, there are differences between how we treat institutionalized sacred beliefs and implicit sacred beliefs in the first place. And are there differences between individuals, and is it a universal capacity? That it's a universal capacity, I think there's no doubt. That there are differences in individuals, as Darwin pointed out, deep differences, I think, certainly. But here's an interesting, another interesting experiment we did. Uh, with, we, actually, it was inspired by a, talk, a conversation I had a guy with him, Gene Sobotsky, I think his name was, sort of crazy guy. Anyway, so we took this box, which we said was a magic African hand-eating box, and we took it to the classroom. I usually don't work with students, but I figured I'd do it with this one, at Cambridge. And we asked people to put things in the box, and we told them that, unfortunately, things that are put in the box, unless you say the right words and are obedient to the spirits, they will be destroyed. So we asked people to put in pieces of paper and pencils, and nobody had any trouble with that. Then we asked them to put in their driver's licenses. <laughs> people were really starting to sort of doubt it. The majority did, and by the way, the overwhelming majority of the students were atheists. Were they seeing things disappear, or that you hadn't shown them? No, they would disappear. We didn't show them what happened to the things. Right, so they would open the box and there would be nothing there after right. they put in a piece of paper. And then we had them put the hand in. The atheists wouldn't put their hand. the atheists wouldn't put their hands in. Well, we learned something interesting about English students. <laughs> so we've been talking about um, reducing religious conflict, and I wanted to ask anybody who wants to answer this about the opposite: whether there might be any grounds under which we might want to see religious conflict actually increase. And I'm thinking in particular of the following something Scott says about the idea that. Um, religion plays this particular role through some absurd concepts in unifying communities, keeping large communities together. There might be certain instances where really grave, horrible things are being done. People are threatened by them, and really the only way to motivate people to stand up against really grave, horrible things is through this kind of concept. The kinds of examples I have in mind here are, are as we heard earlier today, about the role of religion in apartheid, but um, Catholicism and the Solidarity Movement in Poland, about religion and national liberation movements in, in the Middle East and in Africa or even about the role of the Muslim Brotherhood right now in Syria, the secularist office regime. So given that, given that there is this possibility of religion playing this role in motivating people to stand up against really scary, dangerous things, is there a reason to think that there are certain occasions where they actually want to allow and encourage and fan the flames of religious conflict? 
no, not fan the flames when lose. Kind of leverage religion and encourage it in certain contexts. Yes, fan the flames of religious conflict. No, I mean the civil rights movement is another thing. The uh, uh, liberation theology in South America was the only thing that really resisted dictatorships for 30 years. Religion can be a powerful movement for peace or for war. Again, it depends on who who is using it, how they're interpreting it. There is nothing intrinsic in any religions I know. Uh, I'll hedge that. Uh, but any of the sort of things we're talking about that is for the good or for the bad. They can be leveraged for the good and for the bad, and they have been. I mean, religions do everything. They encourage creativity. They can deny creativity. They can foment war. They can stop wars. Uh, they can encourage stupidity, or they can encourage incredible outbursts of creation. Again, there's nothing intrinsic about it, nor do I think we can ascribe good or bad to religion because of its <coughs> cognitive structure. It serves a very different kind of cognitive, cognitive set of procedures than does rational, uh, you know, sort of empirical, and, and I think confounding them just is confusion. But they serve very different purposes. But again, I don't think there's anything intrinsically good or bad that can be used for both depending on the context and who's doing it. Roger, did you have anything on this... Uh, no, I mean, I mean, obviously there are lots of examples where religion has been very powerful. I mean, Poland and solidarity and things like, like that. But, I mean, you were talking about religious conflict, but that suggests conflict between religions, doesn't it? You were, whereas you were saying you can't use religion as a means of, of facing injustice, for instance, which it certainly could do. So the religious tradition 
uh, has, an, as regards it's probably a central figure, Thomas Aquinas. And one thing that Aquinas says is that it's not appropriate for human law to forbid all evils. Um, and this is something that the Catholic tradition has, I think, failed to take seriously in a lot of its current legislative battles in the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon world, at least. Uh, anyone want to buy it? <laughs> okay, we'll move on. So in the front row here. Okay, I've got three um, comments. Not very long. So my first one is really just what um, Tony said, which is that, um, like, especially um, Julian, I think, but also Scott, maybe, um, like, your idea of religious ethics is that um, they're really individual um, opinions or beliefs, but often religious ethics are about um, good for society, and, you know, like, euthanasia isn't an argument just about... Um, the person is often about citing other examples you gave as well. It's it's always more about the individual person. So to say that people should be able to personally practice what they believe wouldn't work because these aren't about just the person anyway. So <coughs> um, and the sec the second thing is um also the idea that religion like religious <coughs> views are static and easy to find and that in any religious tradition you can say this is what they believe it's just obviously not the case i mean you have in islam for example that and all religions there there are debates throughout the history of the religion in in religious ethics in philosophy in law in um in mysticism that where there's been schools different schools of thought where they debate through reason but through you know obviously um religious um, reason influenced by religion but it's reason on on different issues so there's obviously this not the case that religion is static and reason is part of religion like you can't also you can't separate reason from religion it's just if you actually study religion you find it's not actually not the case that you can do that <coughs> um, and my last point is that um, the idea that um, religious beliefs are irrational and and are unempirical, I think, I think you explained it's not empirically. A lot of religious beliefs have empirical um, facts and reasons behind them. Um, but also for the case of, you know, secular beliefs, a lot of secular beliefs are not based on empirical facts. So, for example, and it leads people to carry on practices that. Um, don't produce the results they claim and that are harmful to society. For example, international development. International development is generally a secular view. It's based on um, beliefs that they claim are facts, but the facts actually don't, um, don't prove, empirically prove them wrong when you look at them. And a lot of people have argued for that. And also with the war on terror, like I studied strategy, and in, in the in, interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, the same arguments made as are being made now for the intervening in Iran, which were proved to be false. And you know, the little things like, oh, if we if we kill the leader, that um, people will love America and will uprise against the government. Now these are still argued as facts, even though time and time again they've been proven not the case. So I'm just saying as example that secular views like this also don't use empirical arguments. Okay, so let's uh, see what the panel. So, so there's, I, I did, maybe I didn't make this point. 
secular people and religious people have many of the same values. Okay, you know, I think it's wrong to kill. That you should look after your children, and etc. So that there'll be lots of things that they share. The argument is about those that section, that subset of religious <coughs> values that are given purely a religious justification. So to give you an example, you can believe that human beings, members of the Homo sapiens, have a special moral status in virtue of human beings. Now, you could believe this for religious reasons. You could believe that members of the species Homo sapiens were made in the image of God. Therefore, they have a special moral status in the animal kingdom. Or you could believe it for other reasons. Bernard Williams has a famous paper called Philosopher, has a paper trying to justify what he calls the human prejudice in non-religious terms. Now, the claim is simply that when it comes to moral discourse in society about, for example, whether we should privilege human beings over other animals in our treatment, etc., the arguments that should be brought to bear are those ones that can be given a secular justification. Because if you believe if the basis for giving human beings a special moral status is because you believe that they are made in the image of God, that isn't a reason that, first of all, can be shared by people who, who aren't religious. And secondly, is based, I argued, on something with dwindling epistemic credibility. So we're saying that you should be forming policy. If I said to you, well, we should treat human beings specially because aliens have created humans to, be, to enjoy a special moral status in this part of the universe, people would say, well, no, that's not the, that's not the basis for giving humans preference. So it's, it's not that, that religious values and secular values don't share a lot in similarity, it's those that are given a distinctively and uniquely religious justification are not the sorts of values that sh should shape our social policies in the interim. Of course, you could go around believing in your home that you're special because God's created you or aliens have created you or, or whatever you like, but that's not, how, that's not the basis for policy. Now, Janet, you had some points. Well, well, can, can I just come back to that? Because, I mean, I, I just don't see... What you're saying there, because uh, I may—I mean, I remember hearing Bernie Williams give that paper once, and uh, I agreed with his conclusion, but not with his reasons. In other words, uh, all right, I'd say, well, humans are special because they're made in the image of God. He would have another reason, but we could agree about the policy as a result. So why can't we come and talk and say, well, I believe it for this reason, you believe it for that, but we we converge. So let's agree about what we should do, and that seems to me perfectly reasonable, rather than me being shut out of the policy debate. <laughs> Janet, do you want to make your uh, point on this topic? Not particularly. Okay, well, because <laughs> <laughs> we've got two, two more questions. Oh, okay. Unless that not particularly meant you actually did. Can I just respond to this question? Okay, yeah, sure. Okay. So, can secular people be cruel, brutal, and stupid? Yes. Can religious people be cruel, stupid, and brutal? Yes. Can they be interesting, smart, and loving? Yes. Can religious people? Yes. Are the core fundamental religious notions processed in the same way? Well, to believe they are is just wrong. I mean, they're just overwhelming scientific evidence, and you can believe the earth is flat, but it's just wrong. Does that have anything to do with our policies in Afghanistan or Iran? I don't think they do. I think it's stupid American foreign policy. It doesn't have necessarily to do with religion at all. Uh, is religion, can religion promote the notion that individual rights must be subservient to collective rights. I think there are institutionalized religions that do that. I think I've just done some experiments with people in uh, Tahrir Square and in 
Morocco, our Springer's demonstrators, where we were doing studies of Islam and democracy, and they almost entirely believed that democracy means that collective rights must trump individual rights. When we do this with Tea Party people, we get exactly the opposite. Both believe they're religiously motivated. So what does that tell us? Nothing really about religion. It tells us about political traditions, I think. Okay, so quick question over here. Yeah, you know, and we have one God, so there should be one faith. And logo is through logical reasoning. So thinking logically, you know, why they have interfaith, and you have been in that Muslim country, why they call Allah? Why do people call their God Allah? Allah, yeah. And why do people call their God, I don't know, Elohim or, you know? You don't know? I, I don't no. think we're going to be able to resolve that one in the But it's just the, just the word and the language for God. Christians call God Allah in Arabic. No, we use it Allah in our book. Yeah. Oh, well, then. Oh, anyway, well, let's yeah. move on. Uh, let's calm up. Well, actually, there are historical stories why, but. Yeah. yeah. So, just a question whether the reduction of the was um, uh, expressed by Julius is really necessary. Um, it, it picks up on what several people uh, it and easy to use and so on. But let us at the same time look within religions 
for the answer to their problems, because that's where they are to be found primarily. And let us use both those, and let us not knock each other for doing so. Well, I never said that Rowan Williams wouldn't change his view if astrophysics introduced new principles, but he will never change his view that behind all of that, it was God that created the universe that has that obeys those laws. And you know that's that's that was the point. And that that belief I was trying to argue is irrelevant to deciding what we should do today because its connection to any particular set of scriptures or actions is is highly contestable. But the point that you're, you're making about chucking religion out, I didn't suggest that at all. Um, what I suggested is that when it comes to the things that matter, we should focus on the things that everyone can intelligibly discuss and share and find justification whether they have a faith or they don't have a faith. So, for example, in these conflicts that you're dealing with, what are the things that are really important to settle? They are the values that are can be given non-religious justifications. So the values of security, freedom, you know, sufficient you know, means to create a life for yourself and your children, have certain opportunities, all those sorts of things, which are a major part of these conflicts. But in addition to that, there are distinctively, some distinctively religious elements. And if you take what I'm suggesting seriously, it doesn't matter whether you resolve those things or not. What you need to resolve are the just claims to these common sets of values that people have on both sides. So if you can use, the, if you can use psychology uh, or anthropology or knowledges from the science to engineer a, a solution to the conflict, the success of that, that engineering, in my view, will be judged not by whether we've satisfied these non-religious values, it's whether we've satisfied these basic values that everyone can share, whether people on both sides have a decent length of life, quality of life, freedom, enough autonomy, they have, they have decent lives. Now, many religious people think those are the things that matter most. But the, the point is that we don't need to resolve, and indeed it's, it's not important <laughs> whether we deal with the rest of the claims that they have. Uh, what, what matters in that situation is just a political solution, whatever works, whatever will bring about the resolution on the things that really do matter. That's how drawing this distinction between religious values and common values, if you like, is, is, is useful for thinking about these sort of conflicts. Otherwise, you just have a free-ranging thing. One side says that all of these things are important and the other side says that all of these things are important. We've just got to work out the way in which we can somehow either maximise all of these or just bring together a solution. But that's not necessarily a good solution. A good solution for the Israelis and the Palestinians will be one where they all have a decent chance of a decent life. And who gets Jerusalem is just up to them or just up to a, up to a, you know, up to a, a, you know, a strategic political solution. But Julian, as a matter of fact, we show that that just isn't the case. That as a matter of fact, people will never go for that. And that's why they're intractable conflicts. That as long as people propose those solutions, which is a sort of standard well, way. But, that's, but then that's exactly why we need your sort of research. Just say, well, you can't actually get these kind of things unless you, that's fine. That's a derivative use of religious values. It's, not a pro, it's using religious values in order to get to what really matters. So if you can't solve these things unless you address their, these religious concerns, address the religious concerns. But it's not because they're what matter most. 
it's, it's a whole bunch of other things that matter. So I'm not disagreeing with you that that's the, practically the way to go, but I'm saying at, at a philosophical level, the reason that you're doing that is to get to, uh, to, get to these solutions about that. You know, their lives, their children's lives, the society that they live in. But here's a basic disagreement. I don't care the, whether Palestine's on top of Jerusalem or on the bottom. Yes. <laughs> but these are symbols. These are symbols for who you are. That is what defines human groups. Their, their particular... I think, again, Hobbes was absolutely right. What makes humans humans and what gave them the strength to get out of the caves and to give to the rise of civilization, is they were able to form these large-scale groups through these particular means. So they are more fundamental to their group existence than concrete things. And we show again and again in studies that decisions to go to war, decisions to sustain war, decisions to discount the future or not discount the future, all depend on whether you believe they satisfy these values. But this is just a psychological moral heuristic. It's just a feature of our psychology that that's the way that it's, these aren't things that are intrinsically that's valued. All. Which, which, which football jumper you wear <laughs> is not something that intrinsically matters, even though you might care about it most in, in, in your life and really want your team to win the FA Cup final. So, I mean, it's, you know, the fact, so... so but but the, the consequence of what you're saying, if, if it were the case, that human beings didn't have to live in large-scale groups that were different from one another. If we could all live in one vast group where we distribute risks and rewards cooperatively, fairly, and do no harm, then you wouldn't need any religion. But that's not a human being. That is not a member of our species. That's what that we is need some to weird... Tell us, tell us what... <laughs> okay, let's but our weaknesses are. This is just a weakness. Let's one more question. I, 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 I don't think we're going to get any further resolution on this issue. Uh, Tony Cody, last question. Yeah, oh, well, last talk and last question. The first should be last, the last should be first. I think there's some saying for um, I, I wondered why uh, Scott didn't reply to John Langdon's point. Uh, two brief points. One is just, Langdon's saying, you know, there's just, you were talking about the transcendental beliefs being um, a dynamic between them and people interpreting things and so on. Why do you want, why do you want to resist the idea that that's uh, rational? I mean, there's a whole history of all sorts of religions, I know Christianity first, in which people don't just take the stuff for granted. They don't just say, oh, no, I'm stuck with this. They give it interpretations, and some interpretations are better than others. It isn't just that the interpretations are free-floating. People argue about them, they come up with different ones, they change the perspective and the understanding, and they do it with a whole lot of logic. I mean, they're not... Uh, Aquinas is not a theological person, and uh, neither is Marsilius or Padua, whom I happen to prefer for Aquinas. But anyway, uh, there's a whole bunch of this sort of stuff. Now, are you going to say this is just pretending reason? I mean, I, I grant you there's something still different at the heart of a whole lot of things, not just religion. I think there are sort of certain sort of basic beliefs which are in, irrational in a way, but they don't, they're not arrived at by reason. They, they support reason. And that relates to the thing that Julian and, and the bishop... Uh, what would it take for him to give up this belief? Well, what would it take for any of us to give up really basic beliefs? You know, I mean... Uh, Scientists belief in the scientific method. Uh, what would it take for him to... Miracle. It's a stupid question. I mean, you <laughs> ask someone, what would it take for me to give up my belief that torture of a small child for fun is wrong? Oh, if someone asks me that, I say, go away. Don't <laughs> ask stupid questions. Don't ask questions which have got that insane fantasy story attached to them. This is the deep belief. Now, would I change it or something? Who knows? 
it's just bizarre to tackle questions like that with that sort of apparatus. But back to you about the reasoning. Well, first I agree with Julia. I mean, it's true that there's a sort of hierarchy of scientific beliefs that's easier to reject one than the other and to sort of peel back the onion until you get to sort of core beliefs. But I think nothing is off the table in science. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, is, is that proposition off the table? Yeah, that's off, that's off the table. If okay. Can, you know, God <laughs> <laughs> okay, my point. Yeah. But on, 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 and this is also a point that this young lady brought up, that can, do people when they, does Aquinas or, the, you know, do, do you use re reason, logic, uh, utilitarian beliefs uh, when you try to argue out, instantiate, persuade, uh, understand. persuade people, understand, yes you do, of course you do. But are there core elements that are ineffable? I think there are, and I think, again, again, we show that again and again. This adaptive ability to deal with them means, again, that you can't fix them. You can't hold them down. That's mm -hmm. what gives them a certain adaptive flexibility. Can, do we, can we use, say, evolutionary logic and say, well, this makes evolutionary sense, for example, in terms of group selection. Yeah, I think it does, but let me try to be specific. I use reason in a very technical sense. Do you have a preference, you know, standard theories of reason that you lose in law or economics or belief? Do you have a preference schedule? Are means adequate to goals? Do you have principles of transitivity of preferences, things like that? We can show empirically that these all break down. Okay? Now it's true, people like Donny Kahneman and Amos Tversky have shown that these things break down in terms of our normal reasoning from time to time, okay? And that there are certain heuristics for overcoming it. But that's not the point here. It's not that they break down ideally, they break down in principle, and there are no heuristics for overcoming it. It is a completely different register. That is, people aren't even bothered by the fact that there's no transitivity. I can give you examples of in preference schedules, while in normal reasoning they are, and they try to reconcile it once they're made aware of it. So there are different registers. I think the, the open texture of it does give it an adaptability that other beliefs don't have. What can I say? Okay, well, I think... Um I'm just going to say, um, just going back to Julian just for, for a moment, about this, because he's been attacking a lot of Catholic views. Now, I'm not a Catholic, but it does strike me a lot of the views well, that he's been... I No, but he was... You knew euthanasia, abortion, all of contraception, all of those views. Now, it struck me that um, I've heard Catholics defend these views, and they always defend them on, from the point of view of natural law and natural reason, not the authority of the church, and so they actually are saying, look, these are rational views, and they're, they're asking for a rational debate. Now, I would have thought you can just say, look, these aren't conducive to human flourishing as you maintain they are. Yet there is a, a meeting point there, and I would have thought uh, that, that rather than just saying they're religious, we can't deal with them, you ought to be able to argue with them. You look very frustrated. No, 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 it should take too long. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Jan, get it out. We've been wanting to all conference. Come on. Spit it out. I, I haven't got any supporters in this room. Yes, you have. You, you've got to be one, one person has to stand up. You've got to have a support. Yeah. And that's as good as it gets with an anthropologist. It's been really, 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 really
really interesting. Well, can I start with a puzzle? It, it's, it's a different point entirely. But some years ago, just a, a year after 9-11, there was a meeting, the annual meeting of the British Association, which I was speaking at, and they decided to have a religious discussion. No, they had discussion of religions. I suppose the kind of thing this conference was about. And they got a representative from these speakers of each of the religions, and they got me as an atheist. And what really baffled me during this discussion was that the religious people and I didn't seem to be disagreeing about anything. And I simply... We, we don't have that problem. <laughs> well, except that it obviously was a disagreement, but it wasn't about values. It was about facts, metaphysical facts. It was about propositions about the universe. And Tony was speaking at one time about beliefs. And then we have Scott talking about, I don't know whether you call them beliefs, and Julian was talking about beliefs as well, but there's a huge difference whether you're talking about a, a sort of a factual belief about the way the world is, or a value. And some of the values are rooted in factual beliefs, and some of them aren't. And it's and if you, if you conflate those two directions, it makes it very hard to discuss it. But Tony was also, this isn't my sentence, Tony was also saying that when religious people give their reasons, they usually give, as it were, secular reasons. So if they're arguing about euthanasia, for instance, they don't say, God forbid euthanasia. They say, it would mean that vulnerable people will put up pressure and all the rest of it. Now, of course, that's an entirely comprehensible reason, but it's not a religious reason. And I think this is what Julian means. And furthermore, I think one, one of the reasons why we have so much work to do in this center of ours is that very often you find that the secular reasons put forward by religious people could not possibly be thought to lead to the uh, lead to the answer they're purported to lead to unless they were importing the religious presupposition to start with. And the religious presupposition is rooted in factual, but probably metaphysical because it can't be done in terms of science, belief about the world. So I think that makes a huge difference to all these discussions. And I don't dispute what Scott's saying. I find it absolutely fascinating about the... Um, the adaptive value of these things, but it gives you a real problem if you're somebody who can't take on board the metaphysics, but still agree <coughs> that this is exactly the way to uh, to get a society working well. Anyway, that, mm -hmm. I know that doesn't make any sense. Okay, does anyone want a final? <laughs> No, I, I think there's a lot of sense in what you're saying. I, I think that a lot of moral judgments made by religious people are based on metaphysical facts, but of course some people would say they're not facts. They couldn't well, be facts. But then this makes an enormous difference when you get into the details of the discussion mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. see the, religion, the secular reasons given by religious people as rationalizations, which may or may not work, but which very frequently don't. And this leads to a lot of trouble because they pretend it's all a debate in the kind of public terms that Julian would recognise. But if it really depends on a metaphysical belief and it doesn't work properly without it, that is crucial to public debate because you can't give those metaphysical reasons to someone who doesn't hold them.
Okay, I think we better draw these two. We were way over time, and that is, a, I take that as an indication of what uh, the great panel discussion we've had. So, thank you, uh, Roger Scott and Julian and audience. Are you off on your travels now? Yes. Oh, well, that's good. Where is where exactly? Oh, oh, well. So not too far. Good. Oh, it's great. It's really good. Thanks for agreeing. I'm the daughter standing. Thanks for agreeing. He didn't come, so someone has to give it to someone. But anyway, I'm going to go. Although, that is the fact that he is not. Um,